Hi, my name is Christopher Shiner. I'm a neurologist and neuromuscular specialist at uh, Premier Health, Wright State University and Miami Valley Hospital. And uh, the title of my talk is Give Yourselves a Hand. And sort of the point of the talk is to go through and talk about different um, specific neuropathies that you can diagnose with a careful examination of the hand. Uh, this is sort of a slide-based presentation, but if I don't, if you don't have the slides in front of you, I'll do the best that I can to describe it. So if you were to just go ahead and take a look at your hand, just palm side up, just keep in mind that the median nerve innervates um, the tips of the thumb, the index finger, the middle finger, the uh, lateral half of the ring finger, while the ulnar nerve innervates the uh, fifth digit and the median half of the ring finger. And that's sort of important right then and there because right off the bat, you begin to understand that the hand is actually broken up into different regions in terms of its innervation from a sensory point of view. If you look at how the median nerve is laid out, recall that it's the thumb, the index finger, and the middle finger for the most part. Um, that's gonna be C6 and C7 in terms of the dermatomes that are innervated. With the ulnar nerve, it's gonna be more C7 and C8. And so that's gonna be more in the ring finger and the lateral, I'm sorry, the medial half of, uh, of the ring finger. Also, if you go ahead and take a look at the way that the sensory branches of the palm are laid out, you'll start to notice that looking at your hand, just straight up, that uh, the median nerve digital branches also innervate the palm beyond uh, the thenar eminence. For the most part, that's going to be a, a C5, C6 dermatome. And the ulnar nerve, the digital branches of the ulnar nerve, innervate the distal palm. That's going to be more C7, C8, while the ulnar branch, or the ulnar nerve, the palm branch of the ulnar nerve is going to be more proximally, uh, is going to more proximally innervate the, the palm right after the wrist on the uh, medial side of the palm. Uh, again, just looking at your hand and drawing an imaginary line from the middle finger down. So how do you examine doing a, uh, an examination of the hand? Well, I think the important thing to remember is that you really only have to look at three nerves when you want to do a, a motor exam, at least, of the hand. So the median nerve is probably one of the um, tri more tricky ones to, uh, to, to test because a lot of times when you're trying to look at the median nerve, you're trying to determine whether or not somebody has a carpal tunnel related illness or not. And so I have a few tips for that. So if you take your hand and sort of place it in front of you, palm side up, and then you take the thumb and bring it straight up in the air, almost as if you're raising a flagpole over a parade ground, the muscle that you've activated is the abductor pollicis brevis. It's a C8T1 innervated muscle. And this muscle um, is innervated by the median nerve after it crosses through the carpal tunnel. So the idea is that if you push this, your thumb straight up in the air so that it's almost pointing at the ceiling, and then you try to bend it back down towards your fingers, if you have a strong abductor pollicis brevis, you will not be able to do so. And that would imply that there's at least no motor involvement at the carpal tunnel. But let's say the carpal tunnel is involved and you do find some weakness there. So basically the median nerve proper um, innervates the flexor digitorum superficialis, the abductor pollicis brevis, and the opponent's pollicis. Uh, the anterior interosseous nerve uh, innervates the flexor digitorum profundus one and two and the flexor pollicis longus. So you can look, if you were basically going to demonstrate the strength of the median nerve, the way that you would do that is by just flexing your fingers at the base of the hand. That's the uh, flexor digitorum superficialis. The abductor pollicis brevis, which sticks your thumb straight up in the air, pointing it at the ceiling with your palm flat. And the opponent's pollicis, which brings your thumb across your palm. 
Brings your thumb across your palm. Those are three muscles that test the median nerve proper. The anterior interosseous branch of the median nerve can sometimes um, be involved in pathology of its own, usually through trauma. And the way that you can demonstrate trauma to that nerve is actually to um, look for weakness in the flexor digitorum profundus in uh, the index and the middle finger. Remember, that's uh, flexing the uh, index and middle finger distally, and also the flexor pollicis longus. So in other words, the remember, the flexor pollicis longus is the nerve that bends the thumb or the muscle that bends the thumb. So just imagine, if you will, if you want to see if somebody's anterior interosseous nerve is okay, you sort of make the, uh, the okay sign where you touch the tip of your index finger to the tip of your thumb making a circle and then extending out the remaining three fingers. That's your okay sign. Um, people with an anterior uh, interosseous neuropathy can't do that. And instead of making a sort of nice circle with their uh, index finger and their thumb, they just sort of make a flat nothing sandwich, if you will, of, uh, of those, two, uh, those two digits. So that's sort of a breakdown of the median or uh, proper, the motor branches of it. Um, if you were going to take a look at the radial branches of the ulnar nerve, it's sort of interesting. All radial innervation to the hand derives from the posterior interosseous nerve. Um, and there's a lot to go over in terms of what, uh, what the posterior interosseous nerve innervates. But really, the, the key is, is that it basically hits most of the extensors in the fingers, basically. That's really what it does. And it also hits um, a lot of other muscles in your forearm as well. For example, uh, it hits the uh, supinator, the extensor carpi ulnaris, the extensor digitorum, the extensor digiti minimi, uh, the abductor pollicis longus, the extensor pollicis longus, the extensor pollicis brevis, and the extensor indices. It's a lot to go through, but just know that, um, I guess the take-home message here is that you test the radial nerve and the posterior interosseous branch of the radial nerve basically by having the patient extend their, their hand, their wrist, and their forearm. And that's basically how you test uh, the radial nerve. Um, the ulnar nerve branches to the hand are interesting. It travels the length of the humerus and then behind the elbow in the ulna before it sends branches to the flexor carpi ulnaris, which is the first branch that comes off the ulnar nerve, and then to uh, the flexor digitorum profundus digits I guess I should say the, to the fifth and the ring finger. And then distally, the ulnar nerve sends off four branches. It sends off a deep terminal branch, and that's the only motor branch that innervates the hypothenar eminence. Then it also sends off the superficial terminal, the dorsal cutaneous, and the palmar cutaneous sensory branches. So the distal ulnar nerve, one motor branch, three sensory branches. When you want to talk about focal neuropathies that involve the hand, we almost always take a look first at the median nerve, probably because um, that's the nerve that has the most pathology associated with it, at least in terms of carpal tunnel. Whenever you want to take a look and find out where along the median nerve uh, the pathology lies, you really just want to start proximally and then end up distally. So you want to look at uh, places that the median nerve can be injured. And from proximal to distal, they are the axilla or the upper arm the elbow, uh, the forearm, and the wrist. So when you talk about a median neuropathy in the axilla or in the upper arm, the cause of that is typically fracture or trauma um, to the bone or dislocation. Compression can also injure the median nerve. So if you uh, use crutches or if there's a bleed there, wear a tourniquet or you have a compartment syndrome in the upper arm, that's something that can also cause a median nerve along with probably some other nerve damage as well, but at least more proximally than distally. And the way that you can tell a median neuropathy that's more proximal than distal is you start at the elbow and then you work your way down. So 
one of the muscles the median nerve innervates is the pronator teres, which is the, uh, you know, the muscle that basically pronates your arm. So one of the things that you could have your patient do is on the affected side, um, ask your patient to supinate the hand and then try to pronate it against resistance. In other words, try to twist their arm against yours. And if they have median nerve damage that's more proximal, typically they'll have some weakness at the pronator teres, and they won't be able to give you as much resistance as they can on the uh, contralateral hand. So that's probably the most proximal branch of the median nerve that you can test or one of the easiest ones that you can go through. And then we already talked about some of the more distal branches that you can look at um, with the opponent's pollicis, the abductor pollicis brevis, and the flexor pollicis longus. Now, the important thing here is, is that it's very hard to damage a, a proximal branch of the median nerve with some sort of generalized process like a, like a trauma or something. And it's very hard to, it, I'm going to say it's hard to damage it, but I guess what I'm saying is, is that it's difficult to do it in isolation. And you always want to make sure that there aren't other nerves involved because um, you never want to miss a brachial plexopathy. So anytime you see, like, let's say if you were to test somebody's median nerve and you were to look at the pronator teres and it was weak, you would say, wow, that's a really proximal branch of the median nerve. But then your next thought ought to be, well, I wonder if there are any other nerves involved as well. Because if you have a brachial plexus injury, you might be looking at um, either a more invasive process or more widespread process than, than just within the median nerve. And you can always confirm, you know, this pathology using electrodiagnostic studies. So there is a, uh, a neuropathy that's out there called pronator teres syndrome that's been talked about by Stewart and others. And basically, pronator teres syndrome is basically pain of the proximal forearm and sensory motor symptoms in the hand when you try to basically pronate your hand. And it's, it's very poorly defined, and there are no real electrodiagnostic studies that confirm its existence. So one of the things is, is that I, I used to see this more than I do now currently, but Prenter-Terry syndrome is one of those things that's sort of a unicorn in medicine. Maybe it exists, but if it does, it's probably more of a, a more specific uh, or more generalized process, I should say, than just a specific neuropathy that goes to the Prenter-Terry's from the median nerve. Um, focal median neuropathies that involve the hand, there's a bunch. So we already talked about the anterior interosseous neuropathy, and that's where the patient can't make the okay sign. When they try to make the okay sign, their finger and their thumb just lie flat. And that's caused by direct injury uh, to the anterior interosseous nerve, typically by trauma or a fracture of the radius. In some cases, a fibrous band or isolated inf inflammation from uh, excessive exercise uh, has been speculated to do that. Those causes are a little more controversial, but they have been seen. And again, you can always see um, anterior interosseous weakness with a more widespread uh, brachial plexus injury. Median neuropathy is within the former and the elbow. So the, the anterior interosseous nerve, as we've been talking about, is one of these neuropathies that if you go to send somebody for an electrodiagnostic study, it may not come back as abnormal because the anterior interosseous nerve is, is exclusively motor and it typically involves muscles that aren't commonly tested on electrodiagnostic studies when folks try to assess the median nerve. Uh, so most of the time um, when you look at electrodiagnostic studies, they're looking at sensory branches of the median nerve to the index finger or to the middle finger, and they're looking at um, motor branches that go to the abductor pollicis brevis. So it can be missed on a routine nerve conduction study. So if you have a question about that or if you get a report back from uh, an electrodiagnostician or a, or a neurologist or somebody in, in physical medicine and rehab, and they haven't looked at the involved muscles with an anterior interosseous neuropathy, in other words, they haven't looked at 
a uh, the flexor pollicis longus, or they haven't looked at the flexor digitorum profundus from the median nerve into the index for middle fingers, you're not going to see it. And you can have sort of a false positive test. But if you send the patient back or send them to typically a neuromuscular specialist who should do an exam and find the same concerns that you find, uh, that individual more likely than not go ahead and test those specific muscles and be able to give you a, a more concrete answer. So just be aware that if you have an anterior interosseous neuropathy, on some routine nerve conduction studies, it may not be picked up. Just it takes an awareness by the referring provider or the um, electrodiagnostician to test for that. This is again to talk about the anterior interosseous neuropathy and electrodiagnostic studies. I have a slide that sort of goes through the evaluation of an anterior interosseous neuropathy and the pattern that you should get on an electrodiagnostic study that incorporates the anterior interosseous nerve. So basically, when you have um, a needle EMG study, you should see that the pronator teres is normal because that's not innervated by the anterior interosseous nerve. Flexor digitorum profundus two and three should be abnormal. Flexor pollicis longus should be abnormal. If you are skilled enough to stick the pronator quadratus or the EMG or is brave enough to, that should also be abnormal. That's not something I really commonly do. It is a little bit of a hard stick and you actually have to go through the opposite side to get to it. While at the same time though, the other uh, non-anterior interosseous nerve should be normal. So the abductor pollicis brevis should be normal and the opponent's pollicis um, should also be normal as well. And also to verify an anterior interosseous neuropathy, you would wanna see uh, normal electrodiagnostic studies um, and, a, and a normal clinical evaluation of the ulnar and radial nerves as well. So folk neuropathies that involve the hand, probably the most famous is carpal tunnel syndrome. So in a way we've saved sort of best for last. It's caused by either reduced space in the carpal tunnel causing pressure on the median nerve or increased susceptibility to pressure of the median nerve. It is the most common focal peripheral neuropathy. It has about a 2 to 3% prevalence with 6 to 9 million people in the United States, meaning that about 17 to 25,000 people in Dayton have carpal tunnel syndrome. It occurs in younger women at around the age of 40, uh, three times more than men, but it tends to equalize um, as both genders get a little bit older. So by the time uh, everyone hits about 70 years old, it's of equal proportion in men and in women, which is sort of interesting. So focal neuropathies in general are tricky to diagnose, but a median neuropathy at the wrist or carpal tunnel can also be indicative of a lot of other different things. Like, for example, reduced space in the carpal tunnel can be caused by rheumatoid arthritis, osteophytes, ganglion cysts, a gout, a fatty tumor called a lipoma, a vascular abnormality, or it could just be congenitally small. You just have parents that have a very small reduced space in the carpal tunnel. You can have increased susceptibility to a median neuropathy at the wrist if you're diabetic, although that's, that remains a little bit controversial. There's a relatively rare genetic disease called hereditary neuropathy to lie, with liability to pressure palsies that can present with carpal tunnel, but then you should also get a history of it presenting with funny nerve palsies in other parts of the body as well, along with carpal tunnel. There are some interesting associated conditions that can occur with carpal tunnel. It occurs uh, more commonly in, uh, in pregnant women, in people with thyroid hormone abnormalities, people with acromegaly. It's uh, common in amyloidosis and in patients that have renal failure or dialysis. And of course, uh, depending on your job, they can also be work-related. So somebody that has a lot of repetitive movement in their fingers or their wrists are more likely to get um, carpal tunnel than someone who does not. So the symptoms of carpal tunnel, basically the dominant hand is usually symptomatic first, but it's bilateral by the time most patients will present to you. And one of the more common symptoms of carpal tunnel is a nocturnal paresthesia. That's a complaint where the patient will say, yeah, you know, I wake up in the middle of the night and my hands 
just hurt. My wrist hurts. My hands feel like they're tingling and burning. And then I shake them out. And after about five minutes, it all goes away and I go back to sleep. But then it happens again. That's sort of one of the more common uh, signs of carpal tunnel as your patients sort of evolve symptomatically. And then this will progress to a daytime paresthesia, meaning that the patients will start to notice the same nocturnal dysesthesias, but maybe at a slightly different or a, a slightly lesser capacity or severity during the daytime. And they'll notice them with specific activities like driving, using tools, knitting, or even holding a book or a newspaper for a long time can provoke it. And then this will progress to, to hand weakness. So typically, your patients will complain of nocturnal dysesthesias, daytime uh, paresthesias and dysesthesias, and then finally say, yeah, now I, I can't, I have a hard time buttoning my shirt, or I have a hard time opening up pickle bottles or whatnot, or I tend to drop things. And so that's sort of how um, carpal tunnel tends to evolve in the hand. But one of the keys is, is that you don't need to have all of these signs to come up with a diagnosis of carpal tunnel. If a patient tells you that they have paresthesias in their hands, numbness or tingling in their hands, and they tend to shake it out, and that happens frequently enough um, that it bothers them, I, I think it's reasonable, and American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Diagnostic Medicine thinks this too, that it's reasonable to assume that they might have either a mild carpal tunnel or, or at least the beginning symptoms of it and should probably be tested. So the clinical evaluation of carpal tunnel, it's classic, but it isn't. So again, you always expect to have numbness over the thumb, the index finger, the middle finger, and half of the ring finger. But this is variable because it depends on, you know, basically how much of the nerve is affected and how badly it's compressed. So it can vary between person to person. But you know, depending on how thorough you are with your evaluation and depending on how severe it is, uh, you still can have a normal evaluation with carpal tunnel um, in terms of uh, the sensor modalities and, and up to half the patients that you'll see. And again, this, you know, if you go to my uh, slide that shows the sensory fascicles of the median nerve in the hand, you can see this. There's just a lot of different ways that the different sensory fascicles in the median nerve can be compressed. So, you know, maybe you'll get the entire distribution of the median nerve, maybe you'll only get it partially, and maybe you'll only get it in one patient, it'll just be the tips of a few fingers, and maybe in the next patient, it'll be, you know, the entire kit and caboodle of the median sensory distribution. So, really, it's just, it's one of these situations where if you have sensory symptoms in the median distribution, of the hand in any variety, I would, I would tend to suspect that carpal tunnel could be doing this. Motor evaluation for carpal tunnel really just involves looking at the abductor pollicis brevis. The thing there is, is that um, it's going to be normal until the case is severe, because by the time you start to lose motor neurons or motor, uh, motor nerves to uh, the abductor pollicis brevis, um, your hand must be getting pretty far gone. Is there a gold standard? What is the best test to look for carpal tunnel in a patient? And the hard part for most clinicians uh, is to understand that there is no gold standard. The best thing that you could really say that is the gold standard test to see if somebody has carpal tunnel is in fact the clinical evaluation. Electrodiagnostic studies, they're, they're pretty good. I mean, they pick it up 85, 90% of the time, but they're not uh, perfect. And some people come up to me and say, well, Dr. Shiner, I have a patient who has a positive uh, Tennell's test or a positive Phelan sign or whatnot. Doesn't that tell me that they have carpal tunnel? And the answer is no. In that provocative clinical evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome, are, are really not very informative when they're really put to the test. They're about as good as a coin toss. So you're always better off getting electrodiagnostic studies in patients that you suspect have carpal tunnel rather than doing uh, some sort of provocative test and arriving at a conclusion for that because those, those tests are unreliable. 
So uh, if you look at my slides, I have a listing of um, references that I took from uh, the Stewart book that describes the clinical evaluation of carpal tunnel syndrome and how they've looked at provocative testing and basically just come up with the conclusion that it's better than a roll of the dice or a coin toss. And I'll let the viewer at home or, uh, or on the computer go ahead and decide if they want to look up those studies and read about them, but I summarize them in my slides. If you look at the inclusion criteria for carpal tunnel from uh, the AANEM, it's actually pretty broad. Sensory symptoms in two digits of one, two, three, and four for at least one month. They can be intermittent or constant, but if constant, uh, they must have occurred within a period of time during which the symptoms were intermittent. In other words, you can, it'll be intermittent, then it'll be constant, then it'll be intermittent again. The numbness and tingling may be accompanied by pain, but pain is not sufficient to meet this first inclusion criteria. And the reason for that is that pain is always a nonspecific uh, symptom. But here you have inclusion criteria that say sensory symptoms in two digits of the hand. And then sensory symptoms are aggravated by sleep, sustained hand or arm positioning, or repetitive actions of the hand. Sensory symptoms are mitigated by changes in hand posture, shaking of the hand, or use of a wrist splint. And if pain is present, the wrist, the hand, and finger pain is greater than at the elbow, shoulder, or neck pain. So basically what that means is, is that if you want to think about carpal tunnel, you need to have numbness and tingling in the digits that I've described, basically between your thumb and your ring finger. In any of them, you just need two. Uh, you need to have exacerbation of these symptoms with sleep or, or funny hand positioning, it, that should get better with hand shaking or repositioning of the hand. And if there is pain, it should be more at the wrist and at the hand than it is at the elbow or the shoulder. And that makes sense because if you have pain at the elbow or the shoulder, then you're thinking not about the median nerve or a process that's going on at the median nerve at the wrist, but something else. Some exclusionary criteria are is that if you have sensory symptoms that are in the little finger predominantly, you really need to think more about an ulnar neuropathy. Neck or shoulder pain is always a warning sign for a cervical radiculopathy or brachial plexopathy. So if you're evaluating a patient for carpal tunnel and they come up with that uh, symptom as well, I, I think that you ought to tread lightly on that diagnosis and consider other, uh, a more broad differential. And uh, numbness and tingling, uh, tingling in the feet, if it's accompanied by numbness and tingling in the hands, that's a little scary because that means that they have a more generalized polyneuropathy. And usually uh, a polyneuropathy present with a lot of uh, sensory loss first in the feet and then spreading to the hands typically over many months or even years. So if you have something more acute that's been going on at the feet and at the hands at the same time, that might call for a more acute evaluation. I really think those are the key uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria for coming up with at least a strong suspicion for carpal tunnel syndrome. And those are the criteria that the ANEM have put out. And um, I have a list of validated studies that look at carpal tunnel syndrome for the AENEM. And you can see those uh, in one of my uh, slides that you can look at on the computer. I think the key here is, is that there's not one study that really does the evaluation well. Any evaluation, I think, of the median for carpal tunnel should include a median motor, a median sensory, and then at least one comparison study of the median nerve, either uh, with, with the ulnar nerve, either um, across the wrist, uh, like uh, like orthodromic palmers, or uh, some people actually prefer a fourth-digit study. It doesn't matter to me which one is used as long as one is used. So again, you need to have a sensory study, a motor study, and a study that compares the median nerve to the ulnar nerve to make sure that the median nerve falls within spec, uh, or at least as a comparison with the ulnar nerve to make sure that it's functioning properly. Certainty of diagnosis 
for carpal tunnel syndrome research guidelines. So basically, definite carpal tunnel syndrome is where patients have all the inclusion and exclusion criteria that I went over and have abnormal nerve conduction studies. So that's sort of definite, okay? That basically means that you have carpal tunnel and you should either, you should get it treated some way, somehow. But you can also have probable carpal tunnel and basically that means that you have abnormal symptoms but negative electrodiagnostic testing. So that's okay. That means that you have probable carpal tunnel syndrome and it should be treated like carpal tunnel, just maybe not as aggressively. In other words, you might want to use wrist splints with the patient. You might want to, uh, you know, repeat the study over time after the wrist splints are being used just to make sure that, it, that it's not developing into something else. So why is electrodiagnostic testing important? Well, I tell you why, because it's one way that you can tell a patient if their carpal tunnel is mild, moderate, or severe. The reason why that's important for a clinician who wants to send a patient to see me or another electrodiagnostic specialist is that if the electrodiagnostic specialist tells the patient that their carpal tunnel is relatively mild, I can send that patient back to their frame provider recommending a wrist splint, which is non-invasive, um, is minimally discomforting to the patient, and can produce results in a few weeks to a few months and has a good rate of success. So that's not bad. Um, you know, basically, wrist splints have a 50% chance of clinical improvement within six weeks. So that will spare your patient surgery or more invasive procedures. The idea of having a moderate or more severe carpal tunnel, one that would, let's say, demonstrate sensory nerve loss or motor nerve loss uh, to the center of your motor nerve branches of the median nerve, that is somebody that I would refer to an orthopedic specialist at least for an evaluation uh, in the eventuality that they'll need surgery. You can wrist splint those folks and there's no problem with that. You're not hurting them in any way, but they just may need a little bit more than you're giving them uh, with that lone therapy. But time will tell in that regard. So next I'll talk about ulnar neuropathies that involve, uh, that involve the hand. And um, ulnar neuropathies, just like their median counterparts, can occur within the axilla or in the upper arm. They're uncommon. Some of them have basically the same etiologies that their median nerve counterparts have, sleeve compression, trauma, humerus fracture, use of structures, tourniquets, compartment syndrome. All of these can provoke an ulnar neuropathy in the upper arm. Ulnar neuropathies in the axilla or upper arm really need to be evaluated carefully because, again, like their median nerve counterparts, if there's something that's causing widespread ulnar nerve dysfunction in the hand, you really want to make sure you're not dealing with a more a generalized plexopathy. So always keep that in mind. Probably the most common neuropathy that we deal with in regards to the ulnar nerve is the ulnar neuropathy at the elbow. And basically, this is caused by trauma or compression, either by single episodes or by repeated episodes or repeated flexion of the elbow. And in my uh, slideshow, I have some pictures from the Stewart book about how people can develop ulnar neuropathies. And you see uh, people that are just resting on their arm at their computer or a chair, or as they're driving, they rest their elbow on the, uh, the car windowsill. Or um, even as they sleep, they can sleep in such a way that they compress the ulnar nerve or stretch it uh, by flexing at the elbow constantly. That can cause problems as well. So really, uh, it'll get you coming and going. It, uh, you can get an ulnar neuropathy by uh, propping your elbow up on a desk or get up by going to sleep. It doesn't seem to... Uh, Pathology doesn't seem to mind how it gets there, just gets there. Um, all neuropathies at the elbow can also be caused by rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, fractured dislocations, diabetes, or compression by fibrous band or the anconius muscle. 
And surgical positioning, um, unfortunately, can also do this to folks. If they're uh, going in for a long surgery and it just turns out they need to have their arm in a certain place and their elbow gets compressed for just a period of time, they can walk out of the uh, or get rolled out of the OR, sometimes with an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow. An ulnar neuropathy at the elbow is not the same thing as cubital tunnel syndrome. Cubital tunnel syndrome was described in 1951 by Feindel and Stratford, and basically it is a very specific syndrome of ulnar nerve compression by the flexor carpi ulnaris aponeurosis. And so what happens is you flex the elbow, the flexor uh, carpi ulnaris muscle aponeurosis then uh, compresses the nerve when you flex the elbow. So that is cubital tunnel syndrome, and it's different than an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow. All cubital tunnel syndromes are ulnar neuropathies at the elbow, but not all ulnar neuropathies are cubital tunnel syndromes. It's like how all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares kind of a thing. And clinical features of ulnar neuropathies at the elbow, sensory loss within the hypothenar eminence, especially within the dorsal and parmacutaneous branches that don't go through Guillain's canal at the wrist, particularly with elbow flexion or compression at, with pain at the elbow. And again, weakness uh, within, within the FTP at uh, digits uh, four and five, so the ring finger and the little finger, as well as weakness and wasting within the dorsal interosseous muscles, particularly the FDI, the first dorsal interosseous muscle, as well as the abductor digit mini The reason why I point those two out is because it's pretty easy to assess the muscle volume or the muscle, uh, well, just the degree of, I should say, atrophy in those muscles, just, just with your eyes and just maybe by pressing on it a little bit, if you ask the patient to bring their thumb into their hand or if they hold their hand flat with the back of their head pointing up and they bring their thumb hard, sort of adducting it into the hand, the first dorsal neurosis is the big muscle that sort of straddles the base of the thumb and the straddles the sort of between the base of the thumb and just below the uh, the index finger, and you can see that pop up pretty easily. And just the same way as you can see the uh, abductor digiti minimi really pop out when you extend your little finger, you can take a look at that muscle, and it becomes very tight. So that's a muscle uh, that can be easily evaluated and paired with um, those on the other side. Again. There are provocative tests that look for ulnar neuropathies at the elbow, but none of them are really worth their salt, so I wouldn't bother with it. Uh, the idea is, is that if you have symptoms, get it evaluated. And the symptoms that are typically involved with an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow are um, weakness, but the weakness is interesting. Even though the neuropathy itself is at the elbow, Classically, it is the more distal muscles that are affected more so than the proximal muscles. So an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow will almost always produce weakness within the first dorsal interosseous muscle or the uh, abductor digiti minimi. And a lot of the other muscles, it doesn't affect hardly ever if at all, but it can. Uh, you can get um, involvement of the flexor carpi ulnaris and the flexor digitor profundus ulnaris as well. Those happen less than half the time, whereas the, the abductor digit minimi and the, the first dorsal interosseous muscle, those will happen, um, happen predominantly uh, from a motor point of view in an ulnar neuropathy. And again, you have the terminal branches of the ulnar nerve being affected more frequently from a sensory standpoint than the more proximal branches. So that's just sort of an interesting way about how the ulnar nerve lays out. Let's say you suspect that somebody has an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow and you want to evaluate an electrodiagnostic. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's a little bit beyond the audience that this talk is intended for, but I'll just break it down for you real quick. What you really want to see 
is an electrodiagnostic study that shows slowing across the elbow. Really what you want to see is a greater than 10 meter per second slowdown of the ulnar compound muscle action potential when you stimulate above the elbow as compared to below the elbow. The other interesting thing about ulnar opties at the elbow is that if you want to do something called an inching study, you just sort of march the probe back slowly across the elbow, you can actually determine within a couple of uh, centimeters where the blockage is. And you're going to start to see the hit on the motor latencies take place and where you really start to see the whole velocity of the compound muscle action potential slow down. You can also get conduction block with an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow, and that's, uh, that's basically defined as 25% difference above and below the wrist or a 10% difference above and below the elbow. But those last two measurements that I quoted are a little controversial. So that's how you'd want your electrodiagnostician to look at an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow. And what's interesting about the needle part of the evaluation of an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow is that you're going to find, just like sort of how you have the symptoms present, you're going to see a lot of variability in how an ulnar neuropathy lays out sort of on a needle study. You should see more involvement of the distal muscles, or I should say, you should, you'd be more likely to pick up involvement of the distal muscles on a needle study than the more proximal muscles. But then if you do get that pattern where a lot of C8-T1 muscles are being affected or involved, I would be very careful and also take a look at other C8-T1 muscles uh, innervated um, by the median and radial branches to make sure that you're not looking out or you're not missing a motor radiculopathy or brachial plexopathy. So what are the treatments for an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow? Well, you can send folks for, with an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow to see a surgeon, and they can go for ulnar uh, nerve repositioning surgery. The thing of it is is that it's not as successful as carpal tunnel is in terms of relief. So I think that if somebody has relatively mild symptoms and mild electrodiagnostic studies, you might want to try an elbow pad. When I mean an elbow pad, uh, I mean that it's a pad that you wear over your elbow like you see children use in soccer or other things like that, but it's interesting how it's actually used. In the daytime, you'd want the elbow pad applied over the elbow so that you don't traumatize the elbow in and of itself. But at nighttime, what should happen is, is that the elbow pad should be sort of twisted and turned over so that it basically occupies the same space that the distal bicep does. And what that'll do is it'll prevent your elbow from being flexed too hard. That can also cause trauma to the ulnar nerve. So the elbow pad can be worn both in a situation where you think trauma is going to occur to the nerve and when you think that no trauma will occur to the nerve other than what you get through sleeping and other things. Ulnar neuropathies at the wrist are sort of interesting, and basically it's compression of the ulnar nerve at Guillain's Canal. They do happen, they're unusual, but basically what you're looking for with ulnar neuropathies uh, at the wrist is you would basically want to see abnormalities in the deep terminal branch of the ulnar nerve because that is the nerve that supplies the motor branches exclusively, and then you would expect it to um, have predominantly superficial terminal branch involvement from a sensory point of view. So what do I mean by that? So if you have an ulnar neuropathy at the elbow, you would expect the entire ulnar half of the hand to be involved from a sensory point of view, or at least that's what you would expect. An ulnar nerve at the wrist, what you would expect to see is a sensory involvement would be a little more restricted to the digits than to uh, the rest of the palm. In fact, you shouldn't get any palmar involvement, and you should get exclusively hand involvement. In other words, you should get exclusively either ADM or first dorsal interosseous weakness with an ulnar neuropathy at the wrist as opposed to one at the elbow. An ulnar neuropathy at the elbow 
also tends to produce abductor digiti minimi weakness or first ursuline or osseous weakness. But on your needle study, you should be able to pick up sometimes issues in the flexor digiturum profundus or other more proximal ulnar branches of the nerve that will lead you away from the study uh, just pointing to the wrist as the culprit. Ulnar neuropathies at the wrist, actually one of the most common causes of it are compression from cycling of all things. And what's interesting is that you can get both a carpal tunnel uh, syndrome and an ulnar neuropathy at the wrist from cycling. It just depends, believe it or not, on your handlebars. If you have T-type handlebars that sort of go uh, perpendicular to the frame of the bike, you tend to put pressure more on the palm of your hand and irritate the median nerve more so than the ulnar nerve. However, if you have the sorts of handlebars that are sort of curly Q and come down from the bike, what will happen is the handlebars eventually run parallel to the bike and you're sort of stooped over putting a lot of pressure on the medial parts of your hand. Then what you're going to get a lot more of is ulnar neuropathies at the wrist. And there was actually a study done in 2003 by a fellow by the name of Patterson that found that a quarter of long-distance cyclists had diminished fifth-digit nerve sensation and some intrinsic hand muscle weakness after these events. So sort of interesting in that regard. Uh, ulneropathies at the wrist that distinguish it from an ulneropathy ebo, we've already sort of talked about. I'm just sort of going through my slides as well. You should see a lot more muscle wasting in the hand than you do in other places, but be careful with ulnar wasting or muscle wasting in the hand because that can also be a sign of a more widespread uh, plexopathy or even a red flag for Lou Gehrig's disease in some cases. So if you see very severe wasting away of the hand, your first thought shouldn't be an ulnar neuropathy. Your first thought should be this guy has a very serious problem and needs to see a neurologist. And again, the treatment for focal neuropathies involving the hand at the ulnar nerve is you can actually buy handlebars or handle grips that can uh, increase the surface area of the grip itself to prevent the pressure from being approximated right over that ulnar nerve or median nerve distribution. Otherwise, I would just, you know, recommend that, you know, just sort of find a more comfortable way to, to do your cycling. Radial neuropathies are a little more rare than the median and ulnar nerve counterparts, but they do occur. And again, at the axilla and in the upper arm, you tend to get them from trauma compression, just like you do with, uh, with the median and the ulnar nerve. And one of the special cases that we see sometimes and that you learn a lot more about in medical school than you actually probably see clinically is something called the Saturday night palsy. And that's where a patient is sedated from either alcohol or drug abuse, and they sleep with their arm draped over a hard surface such as a chair. And what ends up happening is that they give themselves a palsy of the radial nerve that's proximal. And what they end up getting is a sensory loss uh, over the back of the hand, but also they get a wrist drop. And that's sort of interesting because you don't usually see that with more distal radial neuropathies because actually the extensor uh, muscles of the wrist sit pretty proximally within the elbow. So muscular innervation to the hand muscles, which is what this talk is focused on more or less, is exclusive to the posterior interosseous nerve. The supernator muscle in the proximal form is innervated by the pin as well. So you want to note that the wrist extensors are not innervated by the pin. Those muscles come off above the elbow. Hence why when you have a Saturday night palsy, you get a wrist drop. But when you have exclusively posterior interosseous nerve involvement, you should actually get normal wrist extension strength. So radioneuropathies at the elbow, these are not related to tennis elbow, lateral epicondylitis, or lateral uh, tendonitis. These are all uh, descriptions of inflammation of the common extensor tendon origin at the lateral epicondyle and have no relationship to the radial nerve. Posterior interopsis, uh, nerve neuropathies are typically secondary to traumatic injury, such as fracture, dislocation, fistulas, and surgery. 
There are cases of tardy neuropathies after a fracture thought to be secondary to a deformed bone or joint structure. So in other words, you get a, um, you get a fracture and it heals incorrectly. And as it heals incorrectly, it displaces the radial nerve of the posterior interosseous nerve in the forearm. And uh, then you get involvement of that nerve. You can also get a nerve tumor. Those are rare, um, but they do occur. So radial neuropathies uh, at the elbow, the clinical presentation is you get weakness of finger extensors, but sparing of the wrist extensors. You can also get uh, sensory involvement of the dorsum of the hand, as well as the superficial radial nerve branches near the elbow. Idiopathic posterior interosseous nerve involvement is suspect for brachial plexopathy versus a multifocal motor neuropathy. So really what I'm trying to say there is anytime you get a proximal radial nerve injury or you suspect something that's like that, always think of a plexopathy or radiculopathy first before you go on and recommend that patient get some sort of a surgical procedure to explore or to look for that. Um, you never want to miss something like that. Radial neuropathies at the wrist are even less common, I think, than radial neuropathies at the elbow. But really, the way that you get those is through blunt trauma. You can actually get them iatrogenically from patients getting uh, blood draws incorrectly. And another way that they could be got, unfortunately, is if people are incarcerated or in handcuffs for a long period of time, they can actually um, get radial neuropathies from wearing handcuffs that are too tight. I'll talk about sort of a zebra here, neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. So this is a rare disorder that's most common in young women. And it is, by definition, a unilateral lower trunk compression by a fibrous band arising from a rudimentary cervical rib at the C7 vertebrae with a fibrous band extending to the T1 vertebrae. It's characterized by weakness of the median and ulnar muscles of the C8 T1 myotome and it spares C5-6 sensory loss. What does that mean? You can't have neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome unless you have almost complete and total hand weakness, but sensory loss only within the medial aspect of the hand and the forearm. That is the clinical picture of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. If you do not have that pattern, that is to say weakness of the median and ulnar nerves, C8T1, with relative sparing of what we consider to be the median sensory uh, dermatome, you do not have thoracic outlet syndrome, at least clinically. So to summarize, localize your lesion based on a proximal distal location of symptoms and clinical findings. Provocative testing such as Phelan's and Tennell's tests are not validated means of establishing the diagnosis of any focal neuropathy. Electrodiagnostic testing can help localize a lesion and establish a diagnosis, but negative testing does not rule out the diagnosis. A referral for surgery should be made after electrodiagnostic testing has localized a clinically moderate or severe process that has failed conservative therapy. Thank you very much.